Welcome to the UC Architects Podcast. This is episode six, recorded Saturday, August 25th, 2012. I'm your host, Pat Richard. Today I'm joined by Exchange MCM John Cook, uh, Exchange MVP Sirkan Veraglu, Exchange Architect Michael Van Hornbeek, and MVP Mahmoud Magdi. Welcome, guys. John, what's new with you this week? Hi. Uh, thanks for having me back. Uh, good to be back. Um, not too much new in my world. Still working on this Jabber uh, proof of concept for my large customer, supporting, um, and I'm also supporting uh, Link uh, Dedicated, um, Link Online Dedicated for the enterprise. That's great. Fun. Uh, Sirkan, what's new with you? Yeah, uh, I'm, I was busy for the last two weeks uh, for two consecutive exchange projects that are going on and I'm also doing a huge documentation for a client for their exchange infrastructure and I haven't looked at Link for a month now too busy with exchange and hopefully things will be good in a few weeks Good Michael, welcome Hi, good to be back It's good to have you What's uh, what's new in uh, in your side of the world? Well, I've uh, been busy the past few weeks doing various uh, projects, mostly Office 365 nowadays, actually, uh, and looking for uh, looking forward to a very busy period, you know, with all the events coming up. Um, going to the MCT Summit in Poland, and uh, I think two weeks later it's Mac, so uh, uh, fun times, but busy times ahead. Yeah, it's, like barely, it's like almost like a barely a month to Mac, right? Yep. Yeah, it's about 30, 30 days, I think, so... Yeah, 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 and we'll uh, we'll talk about some news about Mech here in a second. Uh, and last but certainly not least, uh, Mahmoud, how are you? What's new with you? Yeah, uh, it has been uh, three week. I've been uh, a vacation with a feast here in uh, in my region, so I had uh, ten days vacation. So I was doing nothing. So um, I was just celebrating my new daughter. Uh, I got a new daughter last week, so that was pretty much of it. Oh, congratulations! Thank you. Thanks. And heading into uh, top stories this week, uh, one thing that we uh, wanted to mention but don't have a whole lot of news on is um, in addition to the Microsoft Exchange Conference, also known as MEC, uh, Microsoft is adding a day of link content on uh, Thursday the 27th. And we don't know a lot as to what kind of content. we're hoping that that information comes out uh, in the next couple of days. But if you're intending on uh, going to Mech, make sure that you uh, you plan around that, that there's going to be extra content on that Thursday so you can plan your flight accordingly. Have they posted that yet? No, not yet. Um, okay. I, I got permission to say that it's going to happen, and, that, and that's pretty much it. I think they're still working out some of the details uh, as far as who's going to be involved in, in and what kind of format. But um, but that's all I know so far. Yeah, I'm anxious to find out who's going to be or what what it's going to be about and times and stuff because I might have to push my flight back. Yeah, that <laughs> that was my my big kind of frustration is that they waited until now to kind of mention this and you know a lot of people have already booked their flights to go home that day, uh, myself included. So uh, I had to go back to the boss and say I need to change my flight. There's going to be a fee. Um, had to get some approval for that, but um, but definitely looking forward to uh, seeing what's out there. And my understanding is that it's it's not entirely about Link 2013. There's going to be some 2010 stuff, but uh, the format and who's involved yet is uh, still being worked out. 
and and what the, about the things that were announced before because they were planning to do a uh, user group day and meet the experts is that uh, off the table now uh that i have not heard all i've heard is that they had added the extra day okay and next up we have um an update for the the mac link client it goes to 14.0.3 and uh, john you wanted to speak about that yeah, this came out uh, a day or two ago, um, and uh, it's not, unfortunately, it's not a, you still have to either call or follow the, the if you look at the article we posted, you, you, you can, you know, see how to get it. It's not a, you know, downloaded here, so I think there might be even a newer update after the fact, but basically it centers around um, updates to controlling audio hardware, which if you use a Mac with Link, um, can be a challenge, especially if you're running virtualization with a Windows side Link client and getting it to pick the device in the right side, so to speak. Um, so hopefully it'll help with that. I just kind of want to, you know, bring it to everyone's attention if you're having problems. There's a, if you look at the site, there's a specific list of devices that it, uh, you know, updates support for. So I think it's beneficial if you do use Link in a Mac environment um, to take a look at it, to find it up there. Great. And uh, some big news that came out uh, a day or so ago is a new Microsoft logo. For the first time in 25 years, Microsoft has changed their logo. It now looks, um, I would say, somewhat like Metro, but the Metro name has gone away, so it's it's now the, the logo uh, formerly known as Metro. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's the, the modern think, UI style. Yes, there you go. Um, I kind of like the uh, the kind of old logo better, but uh, what do you guys think about it? I think they stole my website logo. <laughs> well, there was you know you know a never-ending uh, flame war on the internet about um, oh it's so it's oh, it's the same font as Apple's and it's only like you know two point typefaces away from Apple's. It's like really that's that's what you're spending your time arguing about. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you, you might expect Apple to sue Microsoft now for $1 billion. <laughs> they, and they might win, too. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Of course, uh, yesterday the, uh, the Apple-Samsung uh, verdict came out, and uh, Apple gets uh, over a billion dollars from Samsung. But uh, going back to the logo, of course, now we, we've seen a new logo for, uh, for Lincoln Exchange as well that uh, uh, kind of plays nicely into the new Microsoft logo. So, Nice. Moving on to our uh, our big topic topics. Uh, first thing I wanted to cover from a link perspective is um, link synthetic tests and what they are and and why they work and why they don't work. So I wrote an art, a blog post um, about this. In link, there are some synthetic test commandlets, and they're all the test commandlets are all the commandlets that start with the word test. So test cs im and test cs um, p to p. And what these are is these allow you to essentially simulate some user interaction and functionality within Link. That way, when you're configuring things, you can see if, uh, if they affect this functionality. And there's a couple of different ways that you can use these. And the first is um, you can simply specify the, the test commandlet and supply uh, some usernames or SIP addresses, depending on which command that you're using. You can also... Uh, configure some test accounts to be used so that you don't always have to specify them on the command line. And these uh, these work really well. And you can also use them in um, System Center Operations Manager, or SCOM, 
to, uh, to monitor uh, functionality within your environment and then throw alerts if something is not working. So one thing I noticed while configuring these for a, a client site recently was that sometimes these don't work. And in digging through, I determined that um, they tend to work fine if you run them from a link server that has a, a local RTC local database. But if you run them from a management workstation, they don't work, obviously, because there's no local database. And what the commandlets seem to be doing is looking for some configuration information in those databases. And if they don't find it, they throw a fairly obscure error that can take some time to, uh, to track down. So if you're going to use synthetic uh, test commandlets, make sure that you're trying to run them from a link server or if you're on a management workstation, use remote PowerShell to connect to a link server and run them there. Has anybody else, does anybody else use synthetic test commandlets? Yeah, I use uh, the test uh, commandlets, um, especially for PSDN testing. Um, I find it's you know pretty handy if you instead of firing up a link client and making sure instead of making sure the person's EV enabled and that you're using the client, you can use things like the. Uh, test P, a PSDN outbound uh, call commandlet um, to, um, you know, actually make a phone call right from the, the server. So it's that's really, that's one I use a lot um, for testing. Yeah, I, I like the fact that um, it allows you to, to test pretty much every facet of Link without having to spin up a couple of test workstations and essentially send yourself messages back and forth. You know, hi, how are you? I am fine. How about you? Um and um, it, it's really a good time saver because, like you said, you can do this all from the server console. Um, I did notice a couple other things, too. And one is that after you apply the June 2012 updates, which most people refer to as cumulative update 6, but Microsoft says don't do that, um, the test CS client auth commandlet is broken. So if you try to run that, you get this really obscure error about, um, about a missing file. And it seems to be a known issue. Uh, I have not heard on a resolution yet, but that test commandlet is broken after you apply uh, CU6. Uh, there's also two others, the last two in the list, uh, that talk about um, web app. And uh, you, can, you can dig up some information about them online, but they're not to be used and they don't work, even though they show up if, if you're looking through all the test commandlets. So just some information to, to kind of keep you updated about that. Yeah, they're also handy, just as an aside, it's handy when you're testing uh, mobile client access also. Again, same thing, you can use the, the test uh, CSMCX commandlets to test uh, IM conversations or conferencing you know, uh, workloads between the mobile clients and again the same thing, it, 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 it's, instead of having to find a client, you know, download a link client, install it on a phone or something, you can do it all without having to go grab a device, which definitely help helpful. Right, and I think um, it, it's a lot easier too if you configure the accounts to be used. And there's a um, a new CS health monitoring configuration commandlet that allows you to kind of permanently assign uh, the test accounts to use for these uh, test commandlets. And um, I found a little quirk about those the other day, um, and that is that the SAM account name for your test accounts cannot exceed 15 characters, even though by default the SAM account name limitation is 19 characters. 
And if you try something that's more than 15 characters, you get about a three-line regex, regex um, pattern that it says it's trying to match. And it can take you a while to figure out what what the problem is and, and really what it's looking for. So um, I was able to verify that once the SAM account name exceeds 15 characters, you cannot use them for synthetic tests. And you had said also that uh, you can't use VPN either, right? Uh, right. It has to be a domain slash SAM account name. And um, in looking, that was that was what I thought was originally uh, the problem was I had it in the wrong uh, uh, format. And you look at this regex uh, uh, pattern and it's, it, I'm not a regex guy, so I looked at it and my head kind of exploded. And <laughs> it, it took me a little while to kind of figure out what it was tr- what it was really looking for and where the problem was. And my client has a very specific naming uh, convention for some of their service accounts. And, and I finally narrowed it down. And um, last I heard that the product group was looking into uh, getting that documented on TechNet. But 15 characters or less. That's good info because you can bang your head in a wall all day and never, and never get it to work and wonder what the problem is. Yeah, right, right. Uh, moving on to uh, the exchange side, uh, we saw quite a few releases uh, since the last episode. Uh, three update rollups: uh, Exchange 2010 Service Pack 2 Update Rollup 4, Exchange 2010 Service Pack 1 Update Rollup 7, and Exchange uh, 2007 Service Pack 3 Update Rollup 8. Uh, the one thing that they all have in common is they all apply um, security patch. Uh, 058, which is kind of a high visibility security patch. But um, Michael, you had uh, had some information about the latest one, update rollup four for Service Pack two. Mm-hmm, indeed. So uh, as you said, the update rollup four includes a fix for um, the MS twelve uh, 058 um, security vulnerability, and. Um, Together with that update rollup, which makes it quite important just because of that, um, Microsoft added some functionality, the tagging for the calendar and tasks items for the retentions. Um, so it seems that with every service spec, um, or sorry, with every uh, every update rollup that they're uh, releasing, they're adding some functionality. But this time, uh, the problem is that because they added the retention, uh, and if you apply the update rollup, uh, you don't pay any attention to that. Um, you might get some issues because um, all the calendar and task items that are residing in your mailbox, which are older than uh, whatever retentions that you've configured, um, could fall under these new retentions uh, and potentially could cause all these items to get archived at once or even deleted at once. So... um, I actually had someone who uh, didn't know that or didn't read the warnings that were uh, displayed on the website from Microsoft uh, and went ahead and installed it. Um, so th- this is actually an issue. And, and, and I think that the, perhaps Microsoft should have communicated a bit earlier or a bit better around this. Um, because uh, along with this issue, uh, I saw that it was uh, Tony Redmond uh, who picked it up that apparently um, the fix for the vulnerability, um, so the fix for the, the 058 vulnerability uh, is released through WSUS, um, but it's in the form of the update rollup fall. So um, anyone 
updating his exchange server using uh, WSUS uh, might get re- update rollup 4 installed uh, immediately. So um, my first reaction would be be very careful with what you do. So what I what I did because we're using it archiving eternally, I rolled out update rollup 4 and the steps that I had to do was really uh, simple. So you either disable archiving temporarily so that people get uh, can get their uh, their uh, calendar items and their tasks sorted out before you apply the retention policies uh, to uh, to mailboxes that have uh, calendar items that go way back or you just disable the functionality where uh, calendar and uh, task items are uh, subject to these retention tags so that's quite quite important though yeah i want to add a few things on that like for the service pack the latest roll up roll up for uh, they did come up with a lot of uh, fixes again. 24 is a nice number of fixes for the for six weeks now from roll-up 3. So there are a few annoying ones that I really liked and which also think might help me on some occasions. I haven't had a chance to try it yet on my clients because we are looking at the retention tags as Michael mentioned out there which might be uh, more problematic than helping us uh, but one of the things what I liked about this rollup is this fix about sent items getting copied into the wrong mailbox uh, if you have senders and full access permission at the same time I really like that one and I think that will help few of my clients who have been complaining about this for ages now so that will be good and also I want to ask if you guys heard about uh, if they fixed this annoying bug Michael would remember it the one about MS Exchange Auto Discover error error ID 1 on Rollup 3 do you remember that one? Yeah, yeah. Preferred site do. is not available. Error. Do you know if they fixed it? Because I couldn't find it in that list. Well, but I, I thought, or what I picked up is that they would add the fix for that error in update rollup 5. So I don't think it's included. Um, I haven't checked with uh, any of my customers who experienced that error, but uh, I'll certainly try to do so by the next episode and I'll let you know. Yeah, because my clients, uh, the ones that are on roll-up tree, are eager to get it fixed because, you know, it just fills in the event event log so fast when you get it and it's a bit annoying. So, according to um, a KB article, it is in update roll-up 4. It It is. Okay. So, and we'll we'll have a link to that uh, online. And um, uh, one of you had mentioned that um, the WSUS issue and I was actually surprised to see the update rollup show up on Windows Update the same day that it was released. That's uh, that usually doesn't happen. Usually there's there's a pretty good gap there between uh, when it's when it's available for manual download and when uh, it shows up on Windows updates. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So this is also why that causes cost perhaps some some issues. Luckily, someone picked it up quite early. Uh, most of us are warned, so we had a time to warn our customers. But I can imagine that there is a sole uh, guy out there who was very eager to implement that uh, uh, that fix and uh, got very surprised afterwards. Oh, I can I can imagine. Michael, um, 
or I'm sorry, uh, Mahmoud, you wanted to speak about Exchange DR design. Yeah, uh, I had uh, I had a customer uh, ten days ago where uh, we were designing his uh, um, DR site, and uh, I had a nice uh, discussion with the guy around um, the DR and uh, service level agreements and the Active Directory design, the certificate design. So it was a, a beef discussion, uh, and uh, I would like to start. Uh, I would like to start with um, with a brief about the the the, the environment that the customer has. He has a couple of uh, um, not couple of thousands, uh, a few few amount of thousands of users. I cannot uh, speak uh, publicly uh, and uh, about the customer, and they uh, they had a lot of uh, users who are VIPs, and they have another group, another group of users who are not VIPs. And uh, when I started to design the 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 DR for the server, the, the DR for the exchange, uh, we found that this uh, that they ordered one server at their DR site. And uh, the, this server was connected to a SAN, and this server holds a hub and CAS and mailbox. Um, what do you guys might think of moving only a group of VIPs and not providing the whole um, DR for the whole users? What do you guys? What is your feedback about uh, this point? Well. Um, it's, it's, it's okay. It really depends on the business needs, I think. It's, it's uh, more a, a business decision than it's a technical one. Um, and usually uh, I'm having the same discussion with clients. Um, it, it's, it's up to what they want. Um, if they want a full DR, meaning that everyone fails over, then obviously they need to make sure that the hardware in the DR, uh, DR side is, is, is sized well enough uh, as it, as it, Actually, they have to have a copy or somewhat uh, almost a copy of their production environment available to keep uh, operations up and running. Um, perhaps maybe downsize a little to have some degraded state of, of uh, functionality. But um, it, it's, it's up to them. If they only want to make a part available um, or only make sure that their production is, is, is up and running or only VIPs, um, that's okay. But as long as they, they're they uh, know what to expect uh, it's it's okay i think yeah uh, uh, that's that's pretty the same discussion that i had michael with the with the with the guys because they they told us what kind of hardware do you need and i told them tell me how many users you will fail to this dr site the the problem that they ordered one server with the 10 gigabyte of memory and enough storage but of course 10 gigabyte of memory for such amount of thousands of users uh would not uh, would not support them so the the second the first problem that we wanted to fill over some uh is some of the users and they are using the auto provisioning capabilities with the exchange 2010 uh, so the VIPs mailboxes are scattered across all of the mailbox databases within the exchange environment. So we didn't have the chance to select a specific database, and that was a task uh, they were gonna do right now. That moving uh, around moving the VIPs to specific database, and of course that has its own impact on uh, on the on the backup as well, because you might get 
different uh, backup requirements for the VIPs or you have a single backup requirements or retention requirements across all of the users within your environment. Well, uh, it's it's very interesting that you say that because I, I tend to agree that uh, in in some scenarios it's it's interesting to separate the VIP users into a separate database, but by doing so you also um, add some uh, some added some risks to the environment because imagine uh, if you put all VIPs into the same database um, and just that database is having troubles, then you're impacting all your VIPs. So I don't know what your take is uh, on that, uh, guys. Uh, it's very interesting to have some some feedback. I think it. it no, sorry, I think it depends on uh, the business itself, the business requirements and stuff. I don't think IT has the option to choose that. Or as consultants, we can just uh, give the examples to them. But uh, it totally depends on their business and how they want to do it. Because you know, most of the companies have policies out there stating that like. They can't even fly together, the VIP people. And also we have other companies out there that VIPs go everywhere together and they have to be together all the time to get the job done. So what I think is it depends on the business policy rather than like technical issues that we'll have. Uh, I don't think I don't think that there is a, a magic bullet for 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 this topic. I uh, for some organizations uh, they have different retention and backup policies for VIPs, and this is why they want to go, to have uh, uh, they want to have um, their own uh, databases. Some people have single uh, backup requirements and single high availability requirements. So um, it's it, it totally depends it depends on uh, on the on the customer. I don't think that there is a magic bullet uh, for uh, for this discussion. No, no, sir, there certainly isn't. But it's very interesting to see um, uh, that your take on that because definitely it's it's a business decision. But I I tend to see that that um, they really yeah it really depends on on the business. But yeah. It's interesting to see how, how you approach. Um, what, what I want to know is what, what would you advise to a company if the business would not be the decision maker? What would your take be? I will say, um, let us see your DR design. Let's go back to your DR design. And uh, in, in my case, they wanted to fill only a specific amount uh, a uh, specific amount of uh, or a specific group of users so if you want to fill back only those uh, or provide dr uh, for uh, for those users you will have to put them in their own uh, database so uh, it's uh, it's uh, it depends again uh, they they started they started with auto provisioning and every everybody was uh, everywhere and the vips were everywhere but uh, w- Due to their DR requirements and hardware design, they they fell back to the VIP only databases. Yeah, I've never been a big fan of uh, putting all the executives on a single database. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people do that, though. Yeah, yeah, I, I still see it, and of course, you know, Exchange has a lot of nice HA features that that can kind of mitigate some of that risk. But that's always kind of given me the willies thinking about that. Right. And as much work as they've done to do, you know, auto balancing and, and stuff like that, you know, make that, you know, easy to do, 
some companies who are like, why would we want to do that? We just put all our important people on one database. That's why we know where they're at. <laughs> it's like, well, that's kind of defeats the purpose of having auto balancing, right? Yes. Uh, the other discussion we had with uh, was around Active Directory. The the DR site is connected using 10 gigabit per second uh, WAN connectivity. So the guys was, were thinking, let us have a single Active Directory site. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, my, uh, my argument was around using two Active Directory sites because Exchange is not aware that... Uh, he is in DR or not in DR. He is not aware yet. And um, the only thing that makes Exchange aware that there is a different site, um, a different um, uh, RPC client access uh, array and everything is using a new uh, Active Directory site. Uh, the latency is, is low, yes. Uh, everything is... High, uh, nothing is running on the, on the, on the WAN link. But using two Active Directory sites will give you a lot, a lot of benefit and simplicity um, uh, on, op- on opposed to single Active Directory site. Um, what, uh, what, is your, uh, what is your arguments here, guys? Oh, I totally agree. Um, uh, if you're going for a DR uh, scenario with two sites, then uh, in my opinion, you should have a secondary uh, or a second AD site uh, just to make your life easier. Um, because if you don't, then you'll have a single CAS array and then you'll have other side, um, types of issues. Um, the only thing that, that you need to take care of, obviously, um, is uh, if you're going to have two Active Directory sites uh, and you're going to apply uh, service back to update rollup and higher then you've got the cross-site redirect things um, and I'm sure that you you ran against that one didn't you yeah we uh, the, the this discussion, this discussion, this particular discussion came uh, with uh, with the service uh, availability design because the guys were thinking the only failure that we will see was in the mailbox database. They were thinking they will not see any failure with with the hub server or with the hub transport server or the the client access server. Uh, the the so. Uh, I explained to them that you might have a failure in the client access server, so you will need to redirect your clients all the way to the new CAS array, and uh, you can use whatever you uh, you can use uh, uh, the the service back to RU3 redirection, uh, uh, which which is available only with service back to and RU3, and they didn't have that yet. So they were updating. They will have to update the RU3, and then go back to this design. Uh, the other thing is they were thinking if we have a failure in uh, in uh, in the hub transport server. The hub, the other uh, hub transport server site will pick up the email and things will go smoothly. Uh, apparently not. Uh, uh, for SMTP, for inbound, it will be. For outbound, it will be not. Um, the final thing is uh, the final thing is this in the, in the list of discussion is a certificate, and uh, the, the the last uh, they were thinking about. Uh, using uh, two different certificates uh, with uh, two different names which uh, which is which is uh, uh, sorry a single certificate you were thinking about single certificate with single name in dr and uh, and uh, hq but uh, after discussion with the internal you you need to 
to take attention to OR redirection and active sync redirection um, and the namespace for the Outlook Anywhere. So we filled back to uh, two certificates with two different names and uh, they are happy with the, with the final design. Yeah, and it's it's uh, interesting that you mentioned the certificate part because usually in such scenarios, what uh, what mostly is forgotten is the OWA failback URL. Um, you know, just in case that when you do a failback, then you've got that slight time interval um, yes. during which you have to wait until the DNS got updated. Uh, and I, I I see quite a lot of implementations uh, where we do an audit, for instance, where uh, never where the 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 OWA failback URL has never been put on the certificate or uh, has hasn't even been configured at all so um that's that's usually something uh, worth mentioning or uh, actually thinking about but um uh, there's an, an inter interesting part about dr design um maybe less technical uh, but something that i'd like to run against you guys uh, as well um how about high availability versus uh, disaster recovery? Because let's face it, DR is really just in case of a disaster. What I usually see is that uh, people mix up both. Uh, they're going to use HA to, to avoid DR, obviously, but they're actually mixing HA into DR uh, and using their HA requirements to, to configure a, a DR. And I personally believe that you should always treat both of them um, separately. Uh, obviously, you're going to use high availability features in exchange to avoid going into a DR uh, scenario, and you might have in your DR scenario some high availability to just make sure that it lasts long enough until you get your original situation back. Um, but how do you guys usually approach a DR um, when, when a customer comes to you and uh, asks you, well, we needed a, 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 a DR scenario for our exchange? What do you do? Well, I think this is a good extension of uh, the HA uh, discussion in the last episode. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it's, I think it, the, the hardest thing is always making the customer understand the, the, the technical capabilities of exchange, you know, its current form with HA and and, and what, how that overlays on their environments. Um, you know, like I said, the misconception is that it's just auto-magically, you know, will fail over and you'll always know where the active databases are and, you know, everyone will fail, fail over fine. It's not necessarily the case. So, you know, getting the education around what is possible is usually the first, first step, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. Um, and how about um, if you go into DR, um, how are your uh, uh, service level agreements there? How do you approach that? Well, first of all, you have to find out if they actually have an SLA because a lot of places, <laughs> they think they do, but they actually never actually sat down and took the time to actually think about what, you know, recovery actually means to them. Is it, you know, routing? Is it dial tone mailboxes, it, it, it's, it, it's always good to get an idea of what, you know, what their requirement or expectation is for an SLA. Yeah, true. But how can you build a DR scenario if you don't know what your requirements are? That's a good point. <laughs> well, interesting information, definitely. And of course, you know, you can't really have uh, site availability without uh, HA and uh, um, interesting uh uh, topics to consider when uh, when designing uh, DR scenarios. 
if I can add just a little thing, I, I was just reading through the, the the IMs, and Dave has has uh, provided some some good information. Um, but perhaps we could continue this discussion in episode seven as well. Uh, stretch it to to there. So it started last week, uh, two weeks ago, uh, about high availability, and you know, uh, Steve said that you shouldn't have an active active DAG or uh, should avoid to have one. And the elements that Dave is, um, is is talking about here, like having a file share witness in a third data center, uh, which I would never and or ever try to do, <laughs> or uh, exclude domain controllers um, from an exchange server, which I would avoid to do in any <laughs> given circumstance, are really interesting things to talk about because I usually see things like that all over the place. So I don't know how you guys feel. Do you want to talk about them now and extend the discussion or uh, move it to next um, next episode and kind of stretch this discussion uh, over multiple episodes. Well, one thing I, I uh, remember uh, during a previous discussion, not on the podcast here, but um, around uh, third data centers for a witness, um, I believe it was Ross Smith who brought up a scenario where uh, your primary uh, site stays up, but your WAN link that goes out to the other two uh, goes down, and that can cause some some issues there. So something to consider, but we can certainly uh, discuss discuss it some more in uh, in episode seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that would be worth it because there's quite a lot of misconceptions, uh, and and I I think Dave has got some quite interesting topics. So I just wanted to know. And I and this is a perfect time to uh, to mention that. Um, for those of you listening to the podcast, if you do have questions around DR or HA design, by all means, head over to our Facebook page and post the question, and we can take those into consideration when we uh, discuss this in the future. Moving along to uh, the next topic, um, something that we're still waiting for a little bit of information about is uh, Exchange 2013 migration requirements. And John, you, uh, you were discussing that previously. Hendrik Walter just put up a, a post on the uh, uh, 2013, you know, kind of wiki. It's like literally, like today, he just put it out there. Um, and some of the things, you know, uh, understanding what's public and what's not, um, I had to ask some questions about what, but what we do know, I think, uh, generally from what was uh, published uh, when the preview came out for Exchange 2013 was, um, as we know, in the current uh, preview, there's n- it's, there's a block in place to uh, introduce 2013 into uh, an organization and slash by, by nature uh, an 84 that already has uh, been prepped for Exchange 2007 to 2010. So um, I think you know uh, there's there's some reasons why uh, that's the case. I mean, generally, as we always state, these kind of things shouldn't be done in production anyway. So don't extend your schema with with beta software. It's always rule number one typically, but um, along those lines, um, um, and for those who don't know, uh, Henrik Walter is uh, uh, was an Exchange MVP and he's an MCM, um, and he's uh, I'm not sure if his status is a Microsoft employee or not, but um, he's a pretty avid blogger out there, and uh, we can post, post a link just to uh, some of his stuff. But uh, he definitely contributes to official uh, Microsoft uh, TechNet uh, documentation. Yeah, I think if you've uh, if you've ever gone to msexchange.org, you've seen Henrik's uh, work. Yeah, and he's also a very tall drink of water too. So if you've never met him before, <laughs> um, 
So uh, with 2013, so you know, one of the things that has been mentioned, it has been been drummed home yet, um, is that uh, Exchange 2010 Service Pack 3 will be a requirement. I mean, again, this is this is still early. We don't know if this is going to be a requirement or not. But at least right now, that's everyone's understanding is that for coexistence, um, Service Pack 3 would need to be deployed. Um, we have no ETA or anything around that, so uh, you know, we don't know when that's going to be released or any, anything around that right now. But our understanding is that that's the case right now. Um, and other than that, you know, the, the going through the typical, if anyone's deployed the, the 2015 uh, preview um, already, um, the typical uh, um, AD requirements are there, same as 2010 uh, are currently, um, a 2003 forest and domain functional, um, uh, and uh, 2003 USB2 high catalog server, an EJ80 site when you're going you to install Exchange 15. Or 2013. Um, so most of those things have not have not changed. Um, but like I said, the, the, the service pack three requirement, or if it's going to be a requirement, is the will probably be the, the biggest impacting thing. Um, other than that, there's still some discussions on you know the, the old Microsoft adage was you know or was uh, two versions back. So um, while it hasn't been totally finalized or you know, decided or said one way or another, um, I would guess that uh, Outlook 2003 and below would not going to be supported to go against uh, 2010, or sorry, 2015. And uh, uh, the other uh, clients, like say Office, uh, you know, Outlook for Mac 2011 would be there, uh, Entourage 2008 um, for the Exchange uh, Web Services Edition would be supported, but it's pretty safe to say that, you know, Outlook 2007 and above will be supported clients. Um, uh, and uh, but again, there's no you know 100 uh, percent formal word on that as of yet. Uh, the, the the wiki article that I mentioned on TechNet, there's a kind of a list, and some of these things are listed as to be determined. So that's kind of the things we'll we'll fill in as um, you know time goes on. Right, definitely uh, some planning to uh, uh, to be done yet, and as soon as that information comes out, certainly we'll we'll get that out. Yeah, other than that, the, the, as, like I said, if you install the preview, the preview documentation for Exchange 2013, you'll see that the .NET Framework 4.5 is a requirement. That's, that's going to be new um, for this round. Uh, UCMA 4, um, the Unified Communications Managed API, um, will be required for the UM role, obviously, and integration with, with Link. Um, so those are, you know, those are, those are going to be to be expected. Um, and then you know the ancillary roles like the uh, Windows application, uh, Windows Office web server. Um, you know, there's still some good information coming out now, but it's still very early on. You know, which pieces will require that um, for which you know parts of web access or discovery that that, that sort of thing. But expect to uh, deploy those types of roles as well. Right, and we'll we'll uh, have a link to some of the information on the uh, the blog post for this particular episode. Michael, you had wanted to discuss uh, exchange uh, data protection and compliance. What's up with that? Yeah, well, um, one thing that I noticed in Exchange Server 2013, actually, um, is that uh, they have they've added some some new functionality. You know, the DLP, data loss prevention, um, which which builds uh, 
or extends uh, yet again the compliance feature or the data protection features in Exchange. So uh, when I when I went back um, to Exchange two thousand and seven and I saw the 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 uh, functionality that was added uh, ever since then. Um, I noticed a trend, uh, meaning that that it it becomes more and more important uh, that your data is secure, um, and and uh, what I always found interesting is the way uh, companies or uh, how a company handles its data or how a company makes sure that its data is secured and uh, what I like about Exchange 2010 and obviously what I like about Exchange 2013 is that all these different features really help solving some um, some business cases um, the one that I like in particular and um, what I'd like to know about that one is um, is it deployed um that much in in the US because um, the one I'm talking about is the integration with rights management services. Uh, it's obviously a a data protection feature, um, but what I find is that uh, although that RMS is is really a great functionality which integrates uh, perfectly with Exchange, um, is that it isn't deployed that much. Uh, how is it over in the US actually? That's a good uh, question actually. Um, yeah, just just to, to add my uh, two cents, um, I see it, you know, not as a rule of thumb in large organizations, especially. I think in the U.S., a lot of it depends in on the business uh, the company's in. We have a myriad of laws, you know, depending on what type of uh, business you're in. So if you're a trading company, you know, expect to see that. Um, so that, uh, you know, compliance for SEC is involved, but some other types of organizations may not have that kind of requirement, so you don't see it as much in, in those types of companies. So... I think it's sort of in the U.S. It depends on the nature of the company. Um, some companies don't want any records, so you know I've even had companies go so far as to like you know force circular logging just so that they have no record of, of anything that you know could, could be used against them uh, when the you know, mail has been deleted. So. Yeah, we see a lot of business from the financial sector, and um, a lot of those will use rights management. And my current project, which is with a government contractor, um, has it extensively throughout their organization. But on the flip side, I've gone to uh, higher education uh, customers and things like that, that that don't even deploy it. So it's, it, it seems to be hit or miss. I, I definitely would like to see higher adoption. And I think there's uh, one area there, rights management, where there's not a lot of uh, discussion about it online with uh, with bloggers. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's it's a feature that's not blogged about a lot. Uh, there's not much documentation about it, but it's it's something that I uh, that I really like. Um, last year, I saw a session on tech um, of someone who was talking about it, and uh, what what I noticed is that that actually not a lot of uh, exchange architects are uh, accustomed to using RMS. Uh, but it was just an interesting thing to know um, uh, if it was really a local issue because here in Belgium I think I only saw once or twice an implementation and that's uh, <laughs> that's already a high number so uh, apparently the 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 the, the, the implementation rate is, is, is different uh, it's interesting yeah and in, in, in Europe too you have more stringent laws of, of, of companies not not being able to to store that kind of data right I mean they're much more um, uh, protected of personal liberty in that respect, I think, right? Um, from, uh, you know, what companies can store on, on people. We have that issue even currently about, um, you know, I'm working for a global company and we have 
a completely different uh, you know, set of retention policies for our European data centers um, than we do in the United States because we can't store that kind of data there. So um, I think it definitely is a challenge in, in big multinational type organizations where you know one type policy doesn't fit the, the government you know laws in that region. You know. Yeah, well, uh, indeed, what you're, what you're telling there is, is a very interesting point because, you know, uh, in exchange, you've got the discovery uh, feature, which allows a discovery officer, uh, if you'd like to call it like that, like that, who can search through multiple mailboxes. Well, usually in deployments, uh, whether it's in Belgium or other European countries, uh, countries, it's uh, it's not they're not allowed to use that function because it's an infringement of the the privacy of the end user um so there are only specific cases where it's used and uh, as a result the discovery feature which i very much like isn't used a lot uh, isn't used at all in most deployments yeah and going into the 2013 wave that was one of the things i had uh, asked on the airlift because now when you have a scenario where you're combining um for those who don't know i think we've talked about this before where you know, a combination of SharePoint 13, Link, and Exchange 13, Link archiving could go into uh, Exchange and then be searched by SharePoint for a kind of discovery across both mailbox and, and IM data. Um, you know, what do you do in the scenario? Like, how do you assure that the Link admins can't get access to that, you know, so, so Exchange data and vice versa? How can you make sure that the Exchange admins don't have access to the search of Link archive? So there's going to be, you know, rule-based rule -based stuff around that, but that was a uh, now that could be, once you start combining these things into one pile, then yeah, discovery becomes well, who's got rights to discover what, and and uh, uh, that could be a, a, certainly a challenge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, thank God that they invented RBAC to <laughs> to at least make our life a bit easier when we have to do something like that. Because imagine, you know, back in the days, uh, if a company came up to you and said, well, I've got uh, an admin for this, and I've got an admin for that, and I've got yet another admin who does that, but that one can't touch the exchange data, and the exchange admin shouldn't be touching this. And oh, yeah, by the way, the exchange admin shouldn't touch that feature in exchange. Well, good luck. So um, uh, this is why I love RBAC. Uh, the only thing that I still find after all, these all this time is that... Um, somehow they made it quite difficult. It's it's easy once you know it, but the learning curve for right. RBAC uh, is, is really high. Well, yeah, and it's also, it's, it's also getting people's understanding of it's not just the role that you have and the rights in that role, it's what commandlets that you have is part of that role. That's one thing I think that always throws people off, like, you know, well, how come I can't do this? Well, that role's not, but that commandlet's not, not allowed in that role, so you can't even do that, you know? <laughs> even if you had rights to do it, you can't, run the commandlet to do it. So uh, I think that's always been a challenge. And you know, along those lines, I got a question too. I mean, what do you guys have seen, like in large environments, typically the AD and exchange and, you know, if you say collaborative uh, people and, and companies that have OCS link uh, and, and those types of products are separated. Um, is that the case, you know, that you guys have seen? And in some organizations, you know, it's just one big group of people from AD through exchange and, you know, the UC type uh, What's your guys' experiences on that? Just, I'm just getting a, a sort of a, a operational question. Well, um, luckily or unluckily, depends how you look at it, uh, we don't encounter that problem very much. Um, the most uh, scenarios where I uh, where I come, it's the opposite. There's one guy who is uh, God Almighty, and uh, or multiple guys who can do just about anything and they log in with their enterprise admin account to their workstation, <laughs> things like that. So it's just the opposite. Um, 
So, um, no, no, actually, there are, okay, there are deployments where you have uh, exchange admins um, that are uh, not not allowed to do anything on any other pro- uh, product. But usually, uh, companies do see that exchange admins do need access to AD and they don't make much of a problem of it or they don't try restricting access to, to Active Directory that much. Um, so, not really a big issue over here, I think. Uh, yeah, the same. The same from where I come and uh, and uh, in the Middle East, um, I have worked with couple, three, couple of organizations which separates the the roles between the the Active Directory and the Exchange guys, but they work under under the same umbrella, and uh, they don't have split permissions, but uh, they use. Uh, auditing software to to say something like quest or uh, or other softwares that uh, that tells who did what so the guys are not uh, stepping on others foots so um, uh, there's no hard separation but it's uh, it's enforced somehow at and that I encountered that um, two or three times maximum well, it, it's funny that you mentioned that uh, about the auditing because um, one of the features that I like with regards to that is indeed the uh, the audit logging in, in Exchange, the built-in feature. Obviously, it's not that um, uh, extensive as a third-party product like Quest uh, offers, but it does offer some some uh, control or uh, some, some backtrack on who did what, certainly in teams where multiple people have access to something they perhaps shouldn't have access to. Yeah. I agree. I think in from a link perspective, um, where I normally get the most grief is SQL rights, and what kind of what kind of rights are required for the installation versus ongoing, and that usually involves you know bringing in the the SQL Server team and and some somewhat heated uh, debates about about those rights. Yeah, absolutely, and that's always especially you know obviously with enterprise. And companies that have SQL, you know, dedicated SQL clusters and SQL infrastructure that, yeah, it's like, well, we need a specific amount of rights to hear what here they are. But one thing I've always seen is a challenge with uh, with updates that have, uh, you know, uh, SQL updates as part of the cumulative update for the link. Then there's these times where the link update needs to be run on the back end, which is always fun because then, you know, now you got to install some command lists. And they, so, you know, the SQL people go nuts that you're on the box. And it's just, that could be a real challenge uh, in environments. All right. Well, thanks, guys, for for that uh, valuable information. And the last topic uh, that I have for this week uh, is the MVP program. I know we've mentioned it uh, previously uh, as uh, some of the guys here being uh, MVPs, and there's been some question about what is an MVP, what you know, what's involved with it, uh, etc. Um, I think um, I think eight out of the twelve or thirteen people uh, that make up our group are are MVPs. Uh, an MVP stands for Most Valuable Professional. It is an award, not a certification, that is given out uh, by Microsoft for recognition for uh, contributions to the community. And the community can be uh, online, such as uh, TechNet forums or uh, other forums, uh, as well as uh, blogs, um, uh, podcasts such as this one, as well as uh, public speaking, such as at TechEd, or at a user group. And um, if you've ever come across an MVP or uh, a blog by an MVP, 
you notice that they typically have a lot of information um, before most other people. Uh, MVPs are, are, are generally in on the ground floor of uh, versions of software before they're publicly released, um, at least um, to some degree or another. Um, somewhat similar to uh, the TAP program in that we do see uh, bits and uh, get to talk to product group people that uh, are involved day-to-day with uh, coming up with new versions as well as uh, some of the more um, uh, planning for uh, future versions. Uh, MVPs are also um, also asked routinely about uh, our thoughts on various features and issues that are that we're seeing out in the real world. So we're kind of a voice back to Microsoft as to uh, uh, what's happening in the real world versus what Microsoft kind of planned and, and anticipated when uh, features were added to their software. Um, if you, uh, you, you cannot nominate yourself to be an shucks. MVP. Uh, <laughs> shucks, yeah. Um, and it's generally frowned upon to openly campaign for an MVP award. Uh, it's a good way to kind of get yourself blacklisted. Uh, but generally what happens is um, an existing MVP or a Microsoft uh, employee will take notice of you, uh, generally because of your online activity. Um, and uh, you're nominated. And what happens then is somewhat uh, black box. Uh, people generally won't tell you what actually happens. But um, what happens really is the people at Microsoft take a look at what you're doing, take a look at your uh, contributions to the community. Are you putting out valid information? Does it follow best practices? Are you not going out there and just, you know, slamming Microsoft on, on everything that they've, you know, done, quote unquote, wrong? Um, you know, micro, uh, MVPs are certainly critical uh, of Microsoft and sometimes very openly so. Uh, but that's kind of our place to uh, to kind of give that feedback uh, back to the product groups is, you know, let them let them know really what's going on. Hey, this this was a bad idea, or this feature doesn't work like you planned, or uh, no one's ever going to use this feature. But on the same uh, the same side, uh, they also are responsible for saying, hey, you know, we're deploying this monster environment, and and um, here's what we're seeing. Um, and sometimes, you know, my, Microsoft can't possibly plan for every scenario that, that can happen out in the real world. And so Microsoft, uh, MVPs certainly give back valuable information as to uh, quirks or unplanned results uh, and bugs. Um, I think I saw a statistic that MVPs report more bugs in the software than any other group outside of Microsoft, including uh, the TAP group. So... Um, so the MVP program is is quite a, a good program uh, and grants people a lot of access um, into the product groups uh, to help them uh, bridge the gap between both Microsoft and uh, the, the public. And uh, I think um, two people today, uh, Sirkin and uh, Mahmood, are both uh, MVPs. What do you guys um, have to say about your experience as an MVP? Well, uh, uh, certainly the, the the MVP was uh, was a, was a, was a journey. It's a, a it's an it's an amazing experience being here with the guys. I learned from them uh, being here. Uh, I have been uh, reading for uh, 
for Tony Redman, for Henrik, for uh, Pat, for you, for yourself, and being uh, being with you, being member of this group, uh, it's uh, it's a privilege. Uh, the 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 most important thing for uh, for the people who are looking to be MVPs that uh, advising them not not doing the public or the online or the community activity to become an M- to become an MVP. Uh, um, I, I believe I believe that uh, doing the community work. Uh, has nothing to do with the MVP or whatever an award uh, will be given to you. It's uh, it's uh, it's a work that you will have to do voluntarily and willingly uh, to serve the community. Uh, the MVP is just uh, saying thank you. But uh, yes, it's it's around the passion and uh, and the love to the community. Um, so if you are willing to do the community work to get your MVP uh, the first thing uh, it will be felt uh, and uh, uh, and uh, you won't get the recognition and you won't get the MVP award or if you get it you will get it for uh, one year because uh, you will have to renew your uh, award every, every year so uh, uh, don't do the community work for the MVP do the community work for the community uh, and that's my advice uh, yeah I totally agree with Mahmoud there uh, well I remember when I started blogging about exchange and in those days I didn't even had much idea about the MVP or I don't even remember if I cared about becoming an MVP or not uh, MV- becoming an MVP has never been a target uh, it was always about helping people and you get to understand other uh, other people how they work and how, what they are expecting from the product as well so as a consultant and as an exchange fanatic I can say that's priceless so that's what I how I started doing this and MVP has never been the target but at one point you meet these other guys just like yourself who are ambitious about the product and and one point you meet all these technical guys who enjoys talking about it you go out with them you talk to them or you talk to them through the internet you chat with them you see them in the forums uh, answering the same questions with you and you get to meet those people in time and at one point if people do recognize your contributions you will become an MVP I don't think it is like uh, my. The only thing that I'm gonna say is just like Mahmoud, don't try to become an MVP. You'll become an MVP if you do it. If you keep sharing and caring about people. Right. Any uh, uh, Microsoft employee or MVP can nominate somebody and and get them into the uh, the process of becoming an MVP. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, don't don't try to become one. Um, and and once somebody becomes an MVP, um, that's just kind of the beginning because you have to meet those requirements uh, every year. Every year you're nominated again, and every year you're you're either renewed or you're not. And um, the social networking aspect of the MVP program is phenomenal. Um, I I can speak to the the exchange and the link groups. On the exchange side, there's only 18 MVPs in the United States for exchange and a little over 100 worldwide. 
So from a social net, uh, networking perspective, I think I personally know um, most, if not all, of the ones in the U.S. and a good a good portion of the ones throughout the world. The link group is even smaller, and uh, they're very tight knit. And so, you know, if you have a question, you can always just reach out to that group, or um, you're generally a member of. Uh, of a distribution group that includes product group people. So you can ask a question there too. So um, it's phenomenal uh, from a, a social networking aspect. Yeah. I mean, I, and actually I, I have a bunch of questions along, you know, program lines. And it's funny because, um, you know, it's sort of like before the internet, like how did you, you know, become an MVP? That was always a thing. Like, you know, you, wrote people, you guys, you know, they wrote books or, or whatever, but there was this, you know, where, and I think even on like, you know, Usenet and BBSs and stuff like that, I, I you know, it, but it's now it's like changed where I see that it's, you know, changed to not so much people just answering questions on, on TechNet, but the you know, rise of blogging gave this whole other avenue um, for people to get recognized. Um, and what's, what's especially fascinating to me is that not only are people getting recognized, is that some of the posts you guys do and some of the work that the MVPs have done has really become kind of content and guidance. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, and you guys know obviously as well better than I do, where a blog post, you know, was written about a thing, you know, for Link, Exchange, OCS, whatever it is, and, and you know, the, the product group even said, well, maybe we should just make that guidance. And so people who were totally, sort of, you know, quote-unquote outsiders from the Microsoft product group, you know, their work is kind of the, the, the go-to piece for that one thing. I, I've always found that, you know, pretty cool, you know, where it's like, you know, it's not like a company makes a piece of software and this is how it is and this is how it's going to be. They they look at from to you know out external people really uh, in a fundamental way um, to you know to change the product or at least you know incorporate that and say yeah we never thought of that let's do that you know like pinpoint yeah I know. Like, like pinpoint zones in uh, in 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 OCS were were always were one of those things that were sort of like. Yeah, that sort of became guidance, you know, in Link. You know, it was sort of this. Okay, well, you could kind of do it this way uh, in OCS, but uh, uh, I, I thought it was pretty fascinating. Yeah, I know my uh, my blog post on commandlet extension agents, which I did, uh, you know, I think shortly after Exchange twenty ten came out, uh, became somewhat guidance like that as well. And there was a lot of uh, internal people that were you know, giving that information out or giving out really just the link to the blog post article uh, to people saying, hey, you know, we, we don't have a lot of documentation around it. Here's, you know, here's sure. some information. Um, and that works. Yeah, I can't. And, and I can say, okay. I can say that, um, you know, a, a lot of people, including a lot of Microsoft people, don't know what the MVP, the MVP program is about. Um, and a lot of people think or assume that it's a, a certification, and it's not, like I mentioned earlier. Um, I, I can tell you that I, I got nominated uh, because of a website I did called exchangestuff.com um, many years ago. Um, and most people would recognize it now by the name msexchange.org. Um, but it just got out there and people took notice, and um, you know, I kind of labored away at it and Somebody out of the blue said, "Hey, we have this program called the MVP program, and here's what it is. And and you know, is it okay if we nominate you? And 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 I'll tell you, it's been a fabulous ride. I've been an MVP now for seven or eight years, and um, it is uh, certainly worth the time and effort that you put into it every year uh, to kind of keep that status going. Um, I mean, yeah, you get you know a free TechNet subscription and a free MSDN subscription." 
But the fact that, you know, you can send an email to uh, the person who owns a piece of the product and say, hey, I'm having this problem, or is do I understand this correctly, and and get an answer um, can, is, is fabulous. Can you talk a little bit more, like, how that works? Like, do you have, so, do you get, you know, in sort of internal, like, hey, here, like, again, I'm, I'm asking, like, total out of curiosity, like, how does that work? What is your conduit into the product group or Microsoft in general? Like, how does can I can I handle sure. this one? Okay. Yeah, uh, we have uh, we have internally have uh, uh, two things, two ways to communicate with the product group. The first thing is uh, the the distribution list. We have, uh, for example, for Exchange and Link, we have a distribution list that contain that contains a lot of people from the product group and. Uh, from LinkedIn Exchange, and the other thing is through our MVP leads, uh, where if you if you are looking for something outside of your product group umbrella, or you would like to have something something very specific or link uh, with a very specific person, you can have a direct contact with your MVP lead, and he will redirect it internally until it reaches someone who is responsible for this. Uh, issue or problem uh, personally I have used this uh, I have been an MVP for two years right now uh, I have used this uh, my MVP lead for two times only uh, everything is is getting answered on, uh, on the deals uh, and you get phenomenal support from the product group and the product managers and program managers everything it's uh, it's, uh, it's amazing yeah and I know that yeah, you guys I actually oh go ahead yeah, I, I know that um like with Exchange MCM, there's like there's there's weekly. Uh, it's not just for MCMs, but there's weekly like calls about uh, you know it, it, different segments for Exchange, whether it's cash, transport, whatever. And I know that MVPs are on on that also. Yeah. But uh, that's the only yes. cross thing that I'm aware of. Uh, yeah, I, I see those those or attend those conference calls as well, and it's it's nice because. Uh, they're generally put on by the person who uh, you know might be a, a program manager um, for that particular component, whether it's CAS right. or Hub or Mailbox or whatever. Um, and they'll talk about, hey, here are some issues that we're starting to see, um, and they'll they'll discuss them at you know sometimes 400 level stuff, and you know here's what we're seeing, here's what we think is going on, or here's a resolution that we've come up with, um, and there it's. It's not a one-way street. These are two-way conversations, um, just like uh, the distribution um, uh, lists. Um, I, I can tell you that I, I, I remember this. This was my aha moment with the MVP program was I was at a client site. I had a problem with um, address books for exchange, and uh, I, I just – was stumbling with it. And I was just about to call PSS. I thought, Hey, let me send this out to the distribution list. 10 minutes after I sent it out, I got a phone call from the person who owned that piece in the product group and said, tell me what you're seeing. And 10 minutes later, the issue was resolved. Now, now obviously that's, that doesn't happen all the time. And that's, it's only happened once to me, but I remember thinking this, this made it, you know, uh, worth every, every, every late night up working on blog posts and forum posts and everything like that. And I'll tell you what, the customer was blown away. They're like, I can't believe that you could just talk to that person. You didn't have to go through three levels of support. You know, you didn't have to jump through all these hoops to, 
to kind of figure this out. And, and, and that's what it's all about. I mean, you, you work very hard. Microsoft recognizes that you're working very hard, that you're giving out the good information, and they reward you with even more information. The downside is sometimes we have information that we can't talk about, such as, you know, the stuff in Wave 15 and, and, and you know, stuff that we're not going to see for months and months or the public's not going to see for months and months on end. Um, uh, it, it's very interesting and very exciting, but uh, sometimes it, it, it's frustrating to kind of hold back on that. Yeah, and I've seen it actually work the other way too, where customers get, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, it's great that we can pick up the phone and, and, and talk to people, but customers are like, why can't everyone do that? And you're going, well, okay, obviously, you know, there's a reason why, you know, that, that you guys just can't go straight to the product team when you have a problem. But so I've got, you know, pushback from customers saying, well, that's great, but what, that doesn't help. You know, I mean, it, that's that's it should be you know uh, a direct or you know. So sometimes we know that there's holes in technic articles because you know, like anything else, it takes months for something to get published, and uh, if there's a change that needs to be made, it, take, it might take a while to get published. But we know that that you know the, the data that's on technet is incorrect. Some customers get 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 you know angry, and in, in, in some ways, rightfully so, that that's not updated more often. But um, or you know, that might be wrong in that case. But yeah, like I said, it's it's been invaluable. I use the. DL uh, on my side uh, quite a bit, and uh, uh, it's uh, nice to have some place to go when you really run out of options. You know? And nobody reports more typos in Link TechNet articles. Than <laughs> 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 but uh, great information. So if uh, if you were ever wondering what the MVP program, that's what it is. Uh, you can go to mvp.microsoft.com to find more information as well as uh, do an MVP search and find uh, uh, MVPs in a particular area of expertise or in a particular area of the world. Uh, I know that I I get um, recruiters that, that find me through there as well. So definitely worth the, the, uh, the work. And that pretty much uh, does it for us for Episode 6. I'd like to thank my hosts, John Cook, Sirkin Veraglu, Michael Van Hornbeek, and Mag- uh, Mahmoud Magdi for uh, taking time out of their busy Saturday to, uh, to work with us. And I'd like to thank our uh, producer, Dave Stork, and uh, Michael Van Hornbeek, who uh, works tirelessly behind the scenes to uh, make us all sound smart. And uh, Michael, we, uh, we certainly appreciate all your hard work. We'd like to remind you that the UC Architects are online. Visit our website at www.theucarchitects.com. We're on Twitter at The UC Architects. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash The UC Architects. And we have a group on LinkedIn. Our podcast episodes are available in the iTunes Store, the Zoom Marketplace, and in your favorite RSS clients such as Outlook. See our website for links to everything. We'll see you back for the next episode. Thanks for stopping by.